Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now, I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online, and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough, and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then, and you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? And hello, I am Carol Jurgensen Sheets and I am hosting the Sex Help with Carol the Coach Show and welcome for all my listeners who tune into the show every week to find out how they can improve their selves, their relationships, and of course their lives. This is kind of um, an interesting night for me because every 15 weeks I complete a series of men's groups. And so we did that tonight. And, you know, it's, it's always interesting because this is the night where we talk about the changes the people have made. And I'm here to tell you, if you believe that you have a sexual addiction and you're not sure what to do about it, you're not sure where to go, you don't know if there's really help out there, this show is here to tell you that there is absolute hope for you. I mean, this is uh, called Hope, Strength, and Recovery with Carol the Coach. And at the end of each series, when I'm talking to the guys, I have anywhere from eight to ten guys that listen to the show as well as participate in men's group, you know, they have to self-evaluate. What would they like to do differently? Who would they like to, to show up to be in life? And my belief is whenever you suffer from addiction, no matter what the addiction is, whether it's drugs, whether it's alcohol, gambling, overspending, sex addiction, It it matters not, because if you get the proper help, you end up improving your sense of self. And when you improve your sense of self, you improve your relationships. So if you're listening here for the first time, or maybe you're a repeat listener, I'm telling you there is hope. Now, what do you do when you want that kind of hope? Well, you go to www.sexhelp.com and you look for a certified sexual addictions therapist in your area. I've got people who listen from all over the world. So that's the first thing you do. You put in your country or you put in your state or you put in your zip code and up comes the closest certified sexual addictions therapist. That person is going to guide you. That person is going to help you find out what resources are available in your community. It may be an SA group, an SNM group, an SAA group, a COSA group for partners. You know, worst comes to worst, when I first started in this field, before I was even certified, my guys and or women 
they would end up going to AA groups or NA groups because it was practicing the 12 steps. That's what helps you to become a better person. But things have gotten a lot more sophisticated. As you know from listening to the show, this is a disorder or an addiction that is affecting millions of people. And so there are groups available throughout the United States and worldwide that can help you get the support you need. When you get into a group, you've got to find a sponsor. And when you find the sponsor, then you've got somebody who's going to help personally guide you through the steps, through your life, and that in conjunction with a certified sexual addiction therapist, and hopefully, if you're lucky, a men's or women's group, you're going to find what you need to reclaim your life and to be all that you can be. So tonight, as I was wrapping up my group, you know, I thought about how privileged I am to get to work with these men who really are spending a lot of time making amends to their relationships, whether it be their kids, their wives, their bosses, their neighbors, their friends, their family. It matters not what they're doing is that they know that they need to right the wrongs that they've created in their life. And come on, whenever you're dealing with an addiction, that is going to happen. So I'm very excited. We take a two-week break, and then I add more people to the group. And, you know, we have people in that group that struggle. I mean, there are people that have had trouble finding clean time, There are people that may have had lots of clean time and for whatever reason they slip back into the darkness of sexual addiction. And so it is my privilege to get to work with these people and figure out what we need to do to heal the wounded soul and then to make their community a better place. And, you know, it's kind of what I do on this show. I interview people that want to talk about their addiction and if you want to talk about your addiction you can call me at 1-646-595-3284 again put me in your phone would you under carol the coach that number again is 646-595-3284 and then i interview experts in the field And tonight we do have another expert. He actually wrote a book in 2012. Actually, no, I take that back. It was 2011. He wrote this book called The Problem Was Me. And Tom Gagliano is a highly motivated and successful entrepreneur with a very difficult family background, very much like your backgrounds are. There was a lot of trauma. There was a lot of neglect, and as a result, Tom made a lot of bad choices before he figured out that he is 100% responsible for his life. And part of being responsible for your life is that, in actuality, what you end up doing is you change the way you think. You change the way you talk to yourself which then changes your perspective on not only how you feel about you, but how you feel about the world. And so Tom's got quite the background. You know, he came from trauma in his childhood, and he'll talk to you about how rough things got, how many poor decisions he made. And then he went back, he wrote this book, and one of the contributing authors to this book is Dr. Abraham Tversky who's a noted psychiatrist and author. He went back to school. He graduated from Rutgers with an MSW. That means he's a certified social worker. And then he even added, like myself, life coach to um, his job description. So Tom and I have a lot of similarities. You know, if you get on my website, which is www.carolthecoach.com, you will 
see a lot of inspiring information. Go to my blog, and there are over 500 blogs where I talk about what do you need to improve your life. Then, if you feel like you need even more intense information, go to my website, www.sexhelpwithcaroltecoach, and you'll find out why I've devoted a large portion of my life to making your life better. And I've got contributing um, authors that are clients that have learned from the hard school of Knox. I mean, they just... They know how difficult things are, and now they're writing about it. They're talking about it. Um, I've even had many interviewed on this show. Uh, This is a community where we all contribute together, and that is a wonderful experience. That's very much like the 12 steps. So I can't wait to be interviewing tonight Thomas Gagliano uh, because he is so motivational, and he believes in self-help therapy. And, you know, the people that I work with, the people that email me, the people that call me for appointments, um, many of them have been abused. They've been neglected. And they've been around bullies, you know. Perhaps their parent was a bully. Maybe their big brother or sister was a bully. But Tom's going to be talking about... um, why bullies oftentimes are put in the position of authority and how that creates destructive entitlement Um, and how you may have hooked up with one of those people and what you can do to get out of that relationship. You know, he's a believer that, as with all bullies and or addicts, one needs to fix that inner damage uh, so that one stops acting out in destructive ways. Now, Tom has, um, he's got some interesting roles that he has applied to a lot of these people. He says, you know, we develop an inner critic, and the inner critic affects our life. And, And so what do you do with this inner critic? You know, and we've all got it. I call it the gremlin. It is that thing inside of us that keeps us negative puts us down, keeps us in an inferior position. Um, And his book, The Problem Was Me, helps folks to understand where that inner critic comes from so that you can either silence the voice or learn how to turn it down and create much more positivity in your life. So this is going to be an interesting show tonight. Um, We're going to be talking about bullies and addicts and critical people and your own critical thoughts and, you know, what kind of solutions are available when you've got a negative person in your life. Um, For those of you that live in the Indianapolis area, I just did a segment on Channel 13 on toxicity and what do you do when you have toxic people that live with you. Or maybe maybe they don't live with you, but they help to raise you. And so you know what that toxicity is all about because you lived it. And again, that is so important because unfortunately, if you grow up in a family where there's a lot of toxicity, you also experience as a result either the need to back down when you've got a negative person in your life or you take on that character. So, you know, Sexual addiction, like any other addiction, is about not feeling good enough and medicating those negative feelings that made you feel so bad about yourself. And I'm here to tell you there is strength, hope, and recovery. But it involves a lot of hard work. Now, I say that with all emphasis. I really do. It's hard work. But it is so worth it because you're investing in you. And when you invest in who you are, then what ends up transpiring is that you end up creating that new sense of self and you feel good about your life, you feel good about you, and the relationships that you attract are healthier and are more fortifying. 
And sometimes, you know, we cannot go back and change what happened to us in our lives, but we definitely can find people to be part of our committee, to be part of our community that help to build us up and help to make us feel hopeful. Because I tell I tell all my clients, you know, it's time to use the other F word, and that other F word is faith. And when you use faith and you improve your sense of self, um, all things are possible. And that's the great thing about um, believing in yourself and believing in your higher power. And that's so much a part of the 12-step program. Um, And that is clearly one of the coping skills that will take you to that next level. And we've talked about it before. Once you heal the wounds that you're experiencing in your life, then you can identify what strengths you have and take yourself to the next level. And when you do that, then you are much more likely to get exactly what you want out of life. And uh, it just does not get any better than that. I promise you, um, that's what life is all about. So, uh, we look forward to having Thomas Gigliano on the show, making life a lot better for all of us, teaching us what it takes to make things better in your life. So if you have any questions, you can feel free to give me a call at 646-595-3284. And clearly, um, I will be happy to answer any questions that you have. It um, The show is about helping you to create the life that you deserve. And that's what we want to do. So what kind of addiction do you have? Did you know that there are ten types of addictions, sexual addictions to say the least? Um, Are you somebody who creates fantasy in your life? And, you know, part of that sexual relationship involves a lot of fantasies that really are not Um, accurate, they're not realistic. Maybe you have trouble with watching pornography. Um, You're a voyeur in some ways. Or you may even have uh, watched other people without their knowledge, whether that's peeping into a window, videotaping somebody without their knowledge. You know, I realize that this can become obsessive-compulsive, It's very, very difficult. Maybe you um, are an exhibitionist. You really like exposing yourself. There's something powerful and controlling about that. Maybe you're into anonymous sex. You are a person that has trouble with relationships, but you have no problem hiring a prostitute or... Um, gosh, you know, somebody who is willing to meet with you for sex and not give you any uh, hassle about who they are, where they live, what they do, you name it. That is what can happen. Maybe you touch people. You know, a lot of people actually are into frauderism. That's where they touch people without their acknowledgement, or their position, you know, or permission, excuse me. So what I would encourage you to get is Out of the Shadows by Patrick Carnes. It's kind of the Bible in terms of the different um, uh, types of addictions, and you can figure out what is going on and who you who you are, and what you need to do. Okay, we're going to take a break, and I'll be back in a flash with some more sex help with Carol, the coach. Carol, the coach. 
sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach. And here we are, back with Carol the Coach. Hi, I'm Carol Jurgensen-Sheets, and I am so happy to be with you tonight. As promised, we have Thomas Gagliano, who's a highly motivated and successful entrepreneur, who's going to be talking to you about what do you do when you're around toxic people in your life? What do you get when there's bullies in your life? Why would people have this issue, and more importantly, when you read his book, The Problem Was Me, you're going to understand that you're 100% responsible for your behavior and how can you possibly change that to make your life as as beautiful as possible. So, Thomas Gagliano, I am so happy to welcome you to the show. How are you tonight? Very good. Thank you, Carol. Doing well, and thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And, you know, your book has just been so enlightening for so many people because obviously it talks about being 100% responsible and and changing that inner critic that you've experienced your whole life. But I know that you had actually contacted me when, you know, obviously there was a whole lot of hoopla about Coach Rice and his bully mentality, and and you contacted me and said, hey, I am more than happy to talk about that on the show. So so would you give our audience just a little rundown about who you are, why you wrote The Problem Was Me, and then let's get into the bully thing and find out if some of our listeners have had bully experiences themselves. Absolutely. Thank you, Carol. Well, first of all, I grew up, uh, I'm sure, as some of your listeners have, with a very challenged childhood. You know, it was a lot of addictions, a lot of abuse. My dad was that alcoholic that if he didn't come home at a certain time, he came home and he had this uh, anger in him and he hurt whoever was around, me, my my, uh, brothers, whoever. So what happened is I developed these negative messages, and that's really what my book's about. It's about how our childhood uh, messages kind of direct us to play the roles we play in our life, you know, the addictive roles, the bully roles, but even less um, devastating roles, like a people-pleaser role, where you say yes all the time because it's too painful to say no to people, and you don't know how to say no. You feel like you're a bad person or a caretaker who carries the the world on their shoulders. So all of these roles come about, in my opinion, from our childhood messages. So I got some negative messages as as a kid, and and I was victimized a lot as a child. Some tough things happened to me, and I was a legitimate victim. I mean, things happened to me that weren't fair, things I didn't deserve. But what happened from there is what I want to talk about, how you become a bully. And in my opinion, I wanted the world to pay the bill for what happened to me as a kid. And and what I mean by that is um, I had this pain inside, this hurt inside, and I felt that people should pay that bill. And when people didn't act and think the way Tom thought they should act and think, I developed what I call and what I believe bullies have and addicts have is this destructive entitlement where I somehow, in my own distorted mind, gave myself permission to act in ways regardless of the pain it caused other people. Now, you know, Carol, that's a a blueprint for disaster. Eventually, I'm going to leave a lot of dead bodies around, figuratively speaking, and I'm going to lead a very lonely life. And it got to the point one day that I realized either I fix what's broken inside of me or I'm going to lead a very lonely life. And that's when I started to heal what was wrong with me inside through therapy, 12 steps, 
Um, and I, when I came out of that, there were two things that I wanted to do. First, I wanted to give my children what my father couldn't give me. I wanted to create a safe place in my home where they could share their feelings, where they could tell me um, anything they wanted to tell me. And then I also wanted to help other people. I wanted to help other people understand how their childhood messages imprison them to the roles they play, sabotaging their happiness and not figuring out, you know, why I'm doing this. And those were the two things I wanted to do. And, and uh, thanks, um, thank God I was able to do that. And that's when I uh, wrote the book talking about my methodology and about the stories of others that I've helped um, get through this, understand their childhood messages, understand the ways these messages really sabotage their life so they could stop listening to what I call this warden's commands and really find peace in their life. And that's, that's where the book came about. Well, and this warden's commands is usually based on somebody that you lived with that was pretty influential in your childhood. And exactly. your warden came from your father. Right, right. And, and what I believe very strongly in that, you know, if I asked people to tell me what their definition of intimacy is, many people would say, well, what's intimacy? It's closeness, it's love, it's warmth. Well, that's great from an intellectual point of view. But if I saw my parents always fighting, if I saw one parent always shutting down with the other person or getting angry at the other person or not supporting each other, well, now I got a very distorted version of intimacy. Now intimacy is something, as I grow up, I look to avoid. I look to uh, run away from. And I believe that that's what happens with in certain childhoods. You know, we see that our parents were not supportive, were not nice to each other. There was yelling and screaming. So we begin to develop an emotional version of intimacy that tells us it's not safe. It's not safe to share feelings. It's not safe to be real. And, and we carry that into our adult life, and we don't realize that we're time traveling when we're in intimate relationships because we're going back to what we saw as a 10-year-old, in other words. Um, and that's one of the things I do talk about um, in the groups that I facilitate. I facilitate three groups a week, and I do marriage consultations. And, and I talk about, you know, what was the version of intimacy you saw as a child? Because, you know, intellectually you may, not, you may think differently, but when you're afraid, you're going to go back to those old behaviors that you learned as a child. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, you said it. So oftentimes people that have difficulty with intimacy, because, of course, their own perceptions were very distorted, they learn early on it's not safe to be real. And so many of the addicts that I work with, we really are working on authenticity and honesty. Right. And, you know, in in your childhood, it really wasn't safe to be honest. It wasn't. And, you know, Carol, what I learned uh, at a very early age is not to trust I learned that people weren't safe. And, you know, ironically, as an addict, uh, a recovering addict, what I needed to do to heal was to trust. Now, here's the problem. The first thing I lose is the trust for people. And now people in recovery are telling me, you got to learn to trust again. Whoa, you know what you're telling me to do? And that's some of the obstacles. You know, I hear a lot of times that they, they'll, I, I've heard people tell other people, you need willingness, you need willingness, you need willingness. Well, you know, what makes one guy, for instance, go to 10 meetings uh, a week and not stay sober? And what makes another guy go to 10 meetings a week and stay sober? It's not always willingness, Carol. A lot of times it's trust. Can I trust a process that I'm not in control of? And that's important to know because what I learned as a child, was I had to be in control of every process in my life where I believed bad things would happen. So now you get older and you're into this um, phase of your life where you have to trust other people, but i got to give up my control. That's not an easy thing to do. Well, I know. And so just out of curiosity, Tom, because we've never really talked about this, at what point did you decide, I'm going to have faith and just trust? in the process of trust? Yeah, well, it's a great question, Carol. You know, the, the greatest teacher of all to me is life itself. It's the mm-hmm. con- consequences of life. There's no better teacher. You know, I've had sponsors in fellowship, and I've had therapists, and but life teaches me that if I go on, uh, my best thinking just isn't going to work. 
And when I get to the point of realizing that that's the case, then I turn around and I say, you know what, I'm going to really find um, uh, I'm just going to give it up and I'm going to do what I'm told. Willingness to take direction was huge for me, not just the willingness to seek help. But the willingness to not only seek it, but to take the direction of others was really what I needed to, to have a breakthrough in my life. Well, that's interesting. So was there a pivotal person that helped you trust in that process to, uh, to take direction? And, you know, it's a, it's a funny story because the person that opened the gate for me was the same person that abused me. And that's a kind of tough to explain but it really was my father because my father had been to uh, Alcoholics Anonymous for many years and really became a different person and I honestly uh, did not trust him did not like him and then it was uh, on his deathbed in the hospital when I went to see him uh, the night that my mother had told me that he was dying and that uh, you know I should see him before he passes away and I didn't have a good relationship with him and when I went to see him that night and I sat there, and he told me, he said, you know, he said, uh, I was sitting by him, and I got up to leave the hospital, and he looked at me, and he was very frail. He was hooked up to everything in the world. He was dying. He, he had cancer. It spread all over. And he said, you know, I don't want to leave this world with you not sharing your feelings with me. He said to me, my father had, was dying 20 years ago from lung cancer. He says, and I could never share with him how I felt, and I don't want that to happen to you. And ironically, Carol, it was my father seeing the pain I was in, even with the immense pain he was in, that opened up my forgiveness for him. And, and then after he passed away, I remember I got this, um, this little journal book my mother had given me, and I started to read his journals, and I really started to see that my father, again, was, he wasn't a 10-foot monster. He was a human being. He was, he was me, and I was him. He was a man that had the resentments I had, the fears I had. And I believe that he opened the gate for me to have a little renewed faith in people again. Ironically, the man that abused me was the man that allowed me to trust people again. Wow, that came full circle. And, you know, yeah. so oftentimes in 12-step programs they say, yeah, most addicts are afraid to talk, trust, or feel. And that night with your dad, not only did he encourage you to talk and feel, but that's what developed the trust. That's what it was. And, and I remember after that, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm compulsive in nature, like many mm -hmm. recovering addicts are. It's just the way I am. If I put the compulsivity in the right place, it could be very positive. Um, and I remember after that, I really lunged into the fellowship. I sponsored many too many people, honestly. I started to run groups in my house and in schools free of charge in churches, um, wanting to really give back what I felt I could give back. And then I, uh, shortly after that, one of the uh, gentlemen, a rabbi, who came to my group, I had a priest and a rabbi. The priest had told me he thought I should write a book, and the rabbi told me, why don't you get this book to a Dr. Abraham Tversky, who he knew. And when I got this manuscript to him, he encouraged me to go forward with the book, and it was really his encouragement that got me to keep my feet moving forward. And from there, I went back to school, uh, went back to Rutgers at 51. I, I got my master's degree, and I started to do this professionally. And that's kind of the whole runaround of how, how it all happened. Well, it is interesting to see how it all comes full circle. And, you know, obviously when you had contacted me, you had wanted to talk a little bit about Coach Rice. Now, right. what is your take on Coach Rice, and how can somebody in that kind of position be such a bully and get away with that for years and years and years? Well, first is he's in a position of authority, whether it's the workplace, a coach, whoever that is, a person in a position of authority, it kind of reinforces the permission to do what you want to do to begin with. Now, I know for me, again, I relate it to myself, and I believe that I'd love to get Coach Rice into one of my groups. <laughs> I really would, because what happens to somebody like that is this is, this, is, um, this is a problem that you have to look under those unswept corners of your life. You know, I believe that uh, in Coach Rice's past, there was um, people who bullied him. There was coaches or 
caregivers. I don't know what it is, but what happens is this is a learned behavior. This is a behavior that, again, it's a hurt inside that you're not processing in a healthy way. And that pain, as in my situation, I was a bully as a kid. I'm not proud of that, but I had a pain, and I wanted to hurt others the way I was hurting. And I gave myself this destructive entitlement, this permission, and I believe that a lot of what he did also came from that. Now, he doesn't know he's doing this. It's not intellectually he knows he's doing this, but I think when somebody crosses boundaries with somebody, when somebody abuses somebody in some way, shape, or form, there is a inner pain going on in them that they're really hurting others the way they're hurting inside. So it gets back to like with addicts. If we're not processing the feelings, if we're just sh- pushing them to the side, you know, we're going to pay a bill for that later on down the line. We are. We're going to either act out uh, with addictions, we may act out as a bully, but we are going to act out those unprocessed feelings that we think are not bothering us. So I believe in Coach Rice's case, that's what a lot of this was. And I don't buy into, and I was on a few radio shows in Jersey, I don't buy into what some people say, and they kind of say, well, that's, that's his style. You know, that's, that's the coaches have to be tough. And I've heard a lot of this, and, and it really bothers me because, you know, whenever you abuse another human being in some way, shape, or form, you don't just say that's your style and think that that's a way that gives you permission for that. Well, you're talking to an IU grad, an Indiana University grad, and guess what? I mean, we have had the bully of the <laughs> yes. century with Coach Knight. And yes, you have. Yes, successful. you have. And, you know, he's got a new book out, and it's about being negative, you know. And I'm like, right. oh, my goodness, this man has not learned and also needs your 12-step program or at least a group that you have. Right, um, right. Despite the fact that, yes, that is one way to get people to conform, but it's not a healthy way. It's not. And you know what? That behavior gets handed down and handed down. If I'm abused by a coach, if I'm allowing somebody to do to me what really is not right what does that say about my self-care? And what does that say about what permission then I could take to do onto other people? And this is what it's about. You know, my dad abused me. I mean, he did. He beat me. He abused me. And I, I don't like to admit this, but I, I again, I, as my book says, I take responsibility. I was a bully to my brothers. I hit my younger brothers. So this kind of stuff doesn't just pop up. This kind of stuff is a learned behavior that you hand down to other people, whether it's a coach or a father or whatever it is. It's a learned behavior. And how does it stop? It stops when you expose what I call that warden, that inner critic. You know, I believe, Carol, the biggest bully for all of us is the oppressive bully we see in the mirror. I really believe that. I think that when somebody bullies, they have this inner critic that is just persecuting them inside, telling them all the things they're doing wrong, never allowing them to be comfortable in their own skin. And again, I think this stuff is handed down. I really do. And I can't, you know, I was on a show where a a guy said, well, you know, that's the way Coach Knight used to do it in those days. That's the way coaches used to do it in those days. And I just, I understand the reasoning, but I can't understand the justification of that. I really can't. Well, and I'm glad that you speak out for that because clearly it's that justification that makes people think that it's okay. So now let me just ask you because obviously we got a lot of addicts listening to the show, and you talk about that warden and the inner critic in your book. Will you go into a little bit more detail about what is the warden versus the inner critic? Well, the warden is the inner critic, and what I do in my groups is, I get everybody to expose their warden, to snitch on that warden. I want to know what were the the messages that person uh, received in childhood, and how do those messages from caregivers affect their lives in the here and now. I'll give you a great example. I had a couple come to me, and uh, the, the husband said that he had such a problem talking to his wife. He said, you know, whenever I say something to her, she shuts down sometimes, and I, I, it gets me fr- so frustrated. When I spoke to the wife and I went over her childhood, she had a great childhood. Her mother and father were very supportive. She said until, she says, I would bring them a report card, and if I didn't get all A's, she would make this face. Not, she wouldn't say anything. It was a nonverbal message. And whenever, whenever in her adult life, 
her and her husband would get into a disagreement, and her husband showed this face of disappointment, she would become that 10-year-old little girl. So that's an example of what I do in my groups is we expose the warden's messages, and we kind of figure out how in our adult life we make our spouse or our father or our mother or our boss the same um, person that we grew up with. How do we do that? How, do we, how does it change our behavior? How does it guide our behavior? Because I really believe that without awareness, it's very hard, Carol, to take action if you're not aware. And, and my three essentials is awareness, action, and maintenance. Without awareness, you can't take action. And without action, you really don't know how to maintain those actions. And that's really what I talk about. Okay, so you're saying that the first thing you do is you ask yourself, what were the messages you got as a child? And then you look at your present-day life and you ask, how do you project uh, that warden or inner critic that occurred in your childhood? How do you do that with other people or possibly yourself? Yeah. Right. And it, it affects everything. Everything. It, that, those messages in childhood affect the intimacy you have or don't have, the um, business decisions you make, your parenting skills. They affect everything. And unless you become really aware of it, you really, it's really tough to change it. Again, I had another guy, that brilliant guy, brilliant, brilliant human being that was making $12 an hour at 45 years old because his father clearly made, gave him the message he was never going to amount to anything, so why even try? And he listened to his dad up until 45 years old. You know, these little messages that we receive just really imprison us in a lot of the roles that we play. And unless they're exposed and you get good on this and you really understand, you know, how did I get from A to B in my life and C to D, if you, if you start to put the pieces of the puzzle together, it's much easier to understand why you are who you are. Well, and I'm sure we have a lot of addicts out there that are parents, and we also have a large percentage of people that listen that are partners of addicts. So what tips could you give parents to help stop the bully and addictive mentality from developing? The most important, and I know a lot of your listeners can can, uh, relate to this, the most important piece of a childhood is the child needs to grow up in a safe environment a place where they know that they can share their feelings with their parents, even if it's something that their parents don't want to hear. If you grow up, if you're creating a safe place for your children where they can share anything, their feelings, their, their uncomfortable, whatever it is, if that's the, the first step, it's the foundation that the house is built on. Many addicts, and I could talk about myself, I never had safety as a kid. I never knew what was going to happen. My dad used to call me his little girl whenever I would show emotion. That's the message I got. So really what it told me was you should never, ever show vulnerability or emotion with with your parents. You're going to get hurt. And I know for me, with my children, one of the ways that I was able to change that was, again, a situation where – we had a um, about ten years ago. Uh, one of our do- one of our dogs died, and my son was very sad. And and I remember following him to his room, and I remember putting his arms around me, and I remember him starting to cry. And 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 as he held me, his grip tightened, and his tears were flowing out. And I remember Carol saying to myself, "You know what? I'm giving my son a safe place." a place to cry in his father's arms, a place I didn't have as a kid. And if I can maintain that safety in my home, in that environment, where they can share their feelings and tell me anything, that's the first step in changing the addictive role, the bully role, and the victim role. Well, yeah, and I'm thinking about the fact that you said there's those three processes, awareness, action, and then maintenance. And obviously right. you had that awareness that it was okay. You wanted it to be a safe environment for your kids. Right. And then you took the action by encouraging him to feel right in front of you. And then anytime you do that, there's that maintenance process where that young man knows that he can do that whenever he needs to, and you can encourage that. Exactly. So, I, I... You know, I I also always made it clear to my children 
that they can make mistakes. It doesn't mean they are a mistake. And they can fail at times, and it doesn't mean they are a failure. You know, I know from my childhood, again, whenever I made a mistake, I identified my whole being as a mistake. I didn't have compassion for myself. And that's one of the quality, uh, one of the characteristics of a bully. Bullies don't have compassion for themselves. That's why they have no empathy and compassion for other people as well. And I know what I try to also stress to my children is I give them this, I give them consequences, healthy consequences, not physical ones, but I also need them to know that they could make a mistake in life. They could stumble. It doesn't mean they are a mistake. It's another important message that I give to my children that I didn't have as a child. So, Tom, I'm kind of wondering, you said you run three groups a week, and in your groups, are they self-disclosure groups, or do you actually have them do role plays and modeling and A lot of role playing. Uh A lot of role playing. I, I, I think that when we role play, we get out of our heads and we get into more emotions and, um, you know, I know that there are a lot of recovering addicts in my group. I run two men's groups a week, and I run a women's group a week. And when I role play, people are amazed at how much what they're hearing isn't what the other person's saying. You know, we have filters that are distorted from our childhood. Again, the, the, that process of time traveling, like I'm saying, and, and when somebody says something, it gets filtered through sometimes the ears of an abused person and it comes in at a, a it's totally different when it comes in through the ears than when it goes out through the mouth and when you when you uh, do a lot of role playing you really you really find that out many times with couples I'll make them reverse roles and talk to each other and what's amazing is how little what the person said is what the other person heard it's really an amazing process because you could see that when, first of all, when I feel attacked, I'm putting up my boxing gloves. And if I put up my boxing gloves, I'm not going to be able to hear how you really feel because I'm in defense mode. So if I can have a conversation with somebody without putting on my boxing gloves, without lifting my boxing gloves up, I'm able to hear it and I'm able to have empathy. Well, that makes total sense. And so when they role play, they're able to develop that empathy to know what the other person is feeling without the boxing gloves. Right. I, um, when, when I have a couple, many times, they just want to tell me how they're right and the other person's wrong. Their whole uh, justification is, Tom, I'm going to tell you how I'm right and how he's wrong. And I'm going to tell you how I'm right and how she's wrong. And they spend so much time wanting to be right that they forget about trying to be close. And when everything's said and done and you take all the details out of the conversation, at the end of the game, at the end of the story, they want the same thing. They want to be heard, they want to be loved, and they want to be listened to. But yet they get so you know, confused with all the details that they forget they're really asking for the same thing. Well, it's so nice to hear that you run these groups to help people to become aware of their own behaviors and create different actions. Now, if we think back to the bully, to the person that is experiencing that destructive entitlement, um, usually there are some support systems, whether that's other kids or the school system. You know, with in Coach Rice's case, I mean, obviously you talked about being interviewed and having people have justifications for that behavior. And right. Where do you think the school system falls short in their quest to help people with this kind of problem? That's a great question, Carol. You know, the school system doesn't understand what the real problem is. So they think that we can... Uh, you know, we can have meetings and talk about this, or we can find the coach some money, or we can do all these other things that will get the coach to understand what they're doing wrong. And if it was an intellectual problem, they'd be right. But it's an emotional problem. It's a damage inside. So really, people like this, they need to go, like for an addict, they got to go to places that people know what their real problem is. Um, and, and, and talk about that inner damage they have, not fixing it with fines and speeches and you better not do this again. But Coach Rice needs to go to a place where, 
they can expose his warden, his inner critic. What's going on with you that gives you that destructive entitlement that tells you that you can hurt another person? Where were you hurt like that in your life? Um, how did you feel when you were hurt like that in your life? Let's discuss it. Let's talk about it. Let's bring it to the light and let's snitch. It. Let's let's get it out. And that's really to me what fixing what's broken inside is. It's not about schools talking to people, finding the coach, or trying to have meetings. That's not going to really um, really do the trick. And what schools do, which is even worse, is they try to hide it. They try to keep it quiet and. You know what? That's really bad because if you know about this and you don't, you know, bring it to the light, it, it doesn't go away. It gets worse. And the next time it gets even worse. And that's what we see happening with situations. We saw this in Penn State with uh, with Paterno and all that happened. And, uh, you know, how how not exposing it just made it worse and worse and worse until it became, you know, a horrendous uh, situation. Yeah, I 100% agree. Now, let me ask you, have you done any follow-up? Do you know what has happened to Coach Rice other than him being fired? I really don't. I had heard that he was getting help for this, um, uh, the kind of help that we were talking about here. He was very apologetic. Uh, I, I liked what I heard him say. He wasn't blaming it. Again, it was like you know, I named my book The Problem Was Me because I had to take responsibility, and I, I heard him taking responsibility. He wasn't excusing anything, and I really pray that he does get help for this, um, and I, I think he's getting help for this. Um, I heard that they did pay him a lot of money to leave, and uh, you know, somebody, uh, one of the shows that asked me, do I think that he could ever coach again? And, and sure I do. I think he could coach again when he starts to work on you know, what's giving him that destructive entitlement and what's broken inside of him. So I do think that he could coach again, but he's got to fix what's broken inside. Well, and that's so important for our addicts to know because certainly there are some addicts that maybe are involved with porn and they've developed right. a habit disorder, but right. most addicts really have had some some trauma in their childhood that they Absolutely. reenact on some right. level. And no matter what the reenactment there's always that don't talk, don't trust, don't feel aspect. Right, and, right. And so, you know, that's where anger management would not be enough. It's got to be a program that teaches people how to talk, feel, right. and then, of course, that should evolve into trusting. Right. And, and it's really, again, the first essential is awareness. Listen, I, I know what, what has helped me tremendously in my life is now when I have an uncomfortable feeling, I can process it, and I'm aware of it, and I'm not going to take that uncomfortable feeling, put it to the side, think it goes away, and then it goes into this destructive uh, entitlement or this self-righteousness um, that gets me at that door of addiction again. You know, it's, it's addicts, you don't end up at the door of addiction. There's a whole process that happens beforehand and usually usually it could start from an uncomfortable feeling usually that's the first piece of the process I have an uncomfortable feeling I'm not talking about it or processing it because I'm not surrounded by a healthy support group people that you know that I can throw it on to them and that's the first piece if I don't have that I can go into an isolation feeling very bad about myself and then I could come out of that with a self-righteousness that tells me that I'm right and the rest of the world is what has to get fixed, which leads to the destructive entitlement. So, Carol, the very first thing is i got to become more aware of those uncomfortable feelings that go on inside of me. Well, and as you were talking, I was thinking for so many of the addicts that I work with and that listen to this show, those uncomfortable things might have been that they watched their mother or father be an alcoholic or they were abused sexually right. or physically or emotionally or, you know, they witnessed the death of their sibling or someone that they loved and they never were validated and that those uncomfortable feelings create that isolation you were talking right. about, right. which right. also gives them more license to find defective behaviors that are only going to separate them from the rest of the group as opposed to help them to trust, talk, and feel. Absolutely. You know, that's the old feeling a part of instead of apart from rather than a part of. And that's, that's you know, that's what addicts always 
initially feel this terminal uniqueness until they realize that, hey, you know what, um, I have people out there that if I share what's going on with me, they're not going to um, reject me like other people have in my past. Now I start to learn that, you know, there are people out there that will hold my hand through these situations when I never thought anybody was out there to hold my hand through these situations. And it's a process. And I honestly, Carol, don't know any any good recovering person that doesn't have some form of a support group. It really is a we process, not a me process. And we really need other people to hold our hands through. You know, the very, very first 12-step meeting I went to, uh, I felt very different from everybody there. I built this invisible wall around myself, basically telling people, stay away from me, and I'll stay away from you. I'm just here to stop my addiction. And I remember a guy coming to me after the meeting. He read me like a book. He said, I know what you're doing. He says, you're looking at this guy saying, this guy's full of baloney. You're looking at this woman saying, she's full of baloney. She says, all I want you to do is keep getting your feet here. Even when your head doesn't tell you you should be here, just keep getting your feet here and allow us to love you to health. He says, because you know what, Tom? We accept you way before you accept yourself. And he was 100% right. That's really it. I didn't accept myself. I was my own worst enemy. I was my own worst bully. And when I walked in that room, there was a part of me that felt, you know what? Why would anybody here help somebody like me? Well, you know the answer to that, Carol? You've got to keep getting your feet there long enough to understand that they are you and you are them and you can take their hand. But you've got to keep getting your feet there. Absolutely. Amen. I totally agree with that. Now, Tom, if people want to get the book, The Problem Was Me, how can they do that? They can go to Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. They can leave me any questions they'd like to on there. And I'm writing now, uh, my book now is about bullying, and it's really about bullying begins really in the home. That's where it starts. And I'm starting to write a book about how to how to give our children those positive messages so, A, they don't become bullies, and, B, they don't become victims to bullies. So um, anybody who has a, a personal story that they want to share with me, uh, I am um, ready to start putting some stuff in books. So please feel free to share anything you want with me on, on my website, which is theproblemwithme.com. Okay, so that is that is the website, theproblemwithme.com. And right. then don't you also have a personal website that, that is www. Yeah, yeah www.thomasgagliano, uh, G-A-G-L-I-A-N-O.com. It goes to the same place. And I have, I have a lot of YouTube videos on there, um, on TV uh, every three months on Trinity, and I have some on substance abuse, family uh, relationships, some, some pretty neat stuff. So please... Um, feel free to view my uh, YouTubes, and um, again, I would love to hear feedback. Okay, and again, if they Google your name, and that's Thomas Gagliano, and that's G-A-G-L-I, no, let's see, G-L-I-L-I-A-N-O? G-A-G- Did I get that right? I don't know. <laughs> it's G-A-G-L-I-A-N-O. Okay, and then you are in Jersey, is that correct? Yes. Yes. So anybody who's listening, because we have people all over the world that listen, if they want to contact you and, and perhaps be assessed, think about groups, think about couples therapy or individual, how can they get a hold of you? They could go to Tom at ThomasGagliano.com. That's, uh, that's my email, Tom at ThomasGagliano.com. All right. Well, thank you for making it your mission to help people do two things. I mean, obviously, you're helping them to heal by identifying what has gone wrong in their life, and you're encouraging them to talk, trust, and feel. Tom, it's been a pleasure, and I wish you the best, and keep me posted on the next book. Carol, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. Thank you, and you have a great week. You too. Take care. Okay. Well, that is the end of the show. We totally ran out of time. Now, you know I always encourage you to fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. So I cannot emphasize enough, if you believe that there are things that you need to work on, get this book, The Problem Was Me, by Thomas Gagliano. Email me at carolthecoach. 
um, at AOL.com. And keep listening to the show. I love having you, and I want the best for you. So have a great week, and we'll see you back next Monday at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Talk to you then. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway, and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.